I want to invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and please turn with me to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 13. And I'm going to uh, begin the reading of the Scripture here in verse 6. So if you are able to, I want to invite you to please stand with me for the reading of the Word of our Lord. In John chapter 13, verse 6, we read this. He, referring to Jesus, came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Father God, O oh Father, you are holy. You are glorious. You are wonderful and awesome in power. Father, as we approach you, as we begin our time of, of worship and, and reflection upon your truth and upon your word, dear God, we recognize that we are but creatures, that we are but humble sinners, yet we are gazing into divinity, we are gazing into eternity, dear God. So I just pray that you would grant us all a spirit of humility. I pray that you would remove from our thoughts uh, worldly things, worldly ambitions, so they may not be sinful in and of themselves, dear God. We do not want anything to detract from your worship. I just pray that your name would be honored and glorified. I pray that the truth of your word by your Holy Spirit would be faithfully proclaimed to your people. And it is in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. So we are going to, as announced, look at John chapter 13 this morning. And really in this chapter... I think we see the perplexity of the gospel message. It, it, this is one of those texts which express for us so clearly the reality that, that God's wisdom, that the wisdom of the Lord is so far and above and beyond the wisdom of this world. When we look at this text, we are going to see one of the key Areas in which the truth that God has inspired in His Word, which leads us to the Christian religion and the Christian faith, we will see that our faith and what it is grounded in is so vastly different than the faiths or the religions of the world that we live in. We will recognize this chief and supreme thing, that our faith, that our religion, that the purpose of our worship and our gathering here this morning is not to exalt or boast in ourselves, but is to exalt and boast in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this chapter, as it opens up, is focusing upon one thing, at least in the first half, and what's that? It is the creator of the universe being made a servant for his own creation. And may such a thing always astonish us. May it always grip our hearts. Chapter 13 begins and opens up with this great and this tremendous exalted language about Jesus. It says that Jesus knew that he was going to go back to his father. It talked about Jesus' undying love for his people. That all things had been given to his hands. That he had come from God. That he was going back to God, and we read these things and we marvel. We marvel at, 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 at the wonderful things that are being alluded to here and just how all, just incredible all this stuff is. 
And then it's sort of like John, the writer of this gospel, wants to knock us off of our feet. He immediately then begins to tell us about the fact that Jesus in his final hours, in his final moments, was going to choose to spend his time washing the feet of his disciples. Now listen, we are, when we're talking about Jesus Christ, on your wall there it says that he is the preeminent one. We are talking about the eternal Son of God who was daily the delight of His Father. You know, when we contemplate the love that exists between Father and Son, we are describing a love that is so much greater than any love that you and I can experience. And yet this one, Jesus Christ, what does He do? He gets down on His knees. He pours water in a basin, and he washes the feet of his disciples. Now is that not perplexing? And so Jesus is going to use this thing, foot washing, as a way to teach various lessons to his disciples. And of course, the gravity and the magnitude of these things is greatly increased when we recognize that, that this is the same time frame as the Last Supper. That he knows It is mere hours before he is betrayed into the hands of his enemies. And rather than Jesus spending his last moments on earth uh, seeking out luxury and pleasure, you know, searching out Israel for the, the sweetest wines and the finest foods and things like that, he spends his last moments on earth. The king of the whole entire universe, our Savior, He decides he's going to spend his last moments with people he loves, giving them a lesson in foot washing. And so in verse 6 we read this. That he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now one of the things that we should mention is the fact that in this ancient context of foot washing, though it's sort of a strange thing for us to think about, it was a common thing in their day, But the one who was washing the feet of another would be like the servant. Uh, It was a service performed by a servant. And so it's, it's astonishing to see that Jesus is the one doing this because what it would communicate, I mean, think about this. Where are your feet? They're at at the bottom. Uh, And so for someone to wash your feet, well, they have to get down beneath you. And so it's sort of, Uh, an act of of submission, an act of putting another person above you. It would usually be done by a slave for a master or maybe the children for their parents or something like that. And yet, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who has promised an everlasting kingdom that would never end, we read the great text in Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, The government shall be upon his shoulders. And what does it say? Of his rule. Of his rule shall increase forevermore. And this is what he's doing in his last moments. So we recognize just just what a shocking thing that that is. That you have all these disciples. They're gathered together with Jesus. Jesus, their teacher, their rabbi, their, their leader, the one whom they follow. That it is he who takes it upon himself to do the foot washing. And then it is when he gets to Peter that the real meat of the scene comes into view. Peter, being ever so quick to speak, immediately raises an objection to what Jesus is doing in verse 6, saying, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter's words here, they're emphatic. The question should be read, Lord, do, do you wash my feet? Now, we can recognize why Peter would say this. I mean, if washing another person's feet is considered a a lowly act, then it would make perfect sense for Peter to just be shocked that Jesus is doing this. But you see, what may look like humility and modesty on the surface, there's, there's a level of hidden arrogance. There's a level of hidden self righteousness underneath. Why? Well, because there's a level in which Peter is distrusting or objecting to what Jesus is doing. 
You see, so many times in religion we want to portray ourselves as modest, or we want to portray ourselves as humble, we want to portray ourselves as righteous, when really all we're trying to do is just demonstrate and, uh, how virtuous and, and how, how spiritual we are. Like a child would say, Mom, 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 look, look at me, look at me. You know, it doesn't really go away for some of us. And so this is, this is a scary thing because the line is just so thin and our hearts are so deceitful that we can even fool ourselves. You know, a question that I have to ask myself and which likely you do yourself is, you know, when I, when I pray in public, am I praying to be heard by you or am I praying to be heard by God? It's a, a searching question for all of us and I suppose only he knows the answer. Now, that may not necessarily be what it is Peter's doing here. I can't see into his heart. In all honestly, given what we know about Peter, I, I reckon that this is likely just a man full of, of confused and misplaced zeal and, and, and passion uh, whose mouth is, is running faster than his brain. And he's likely just uh, not thinking before he speaks. But here's where I say that we can see some arrogance on Peter's part, and I, I sort of alluded to this a moment ago. I mean, I mean, think about it. What is he doing when he questions Jesus? He's questioning Jesus. Do, do, you, do, do you see where the, the issue is there? So he has this idea in his head of what humility looks like or how he's supposed to act, and he's so committed to his own idea of what it means to be humble and his desire to portray himself as, as humble and submissive towards Jesus, that it actually causes him to object to the very work that Jesus is doing. So Peter objects. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Well, in verse 7, we read, Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Jesus here demonstrates a, a recognition that what he is doing is, is completely contrary to the ordinary way that people think. Obviously, this is contrary to what Peter expects. He's, he's the one objecting to it. And, and also, I would say this, that to truly understand what it is that Jesus is doing here requires a level of grace. You know, the psalmist, he prays, he says, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You know, sometimes the truths in Scripture, are, they're, they're, so, they're so wonderful and they're so fantastical that, that flesh and blood cannot discern these things. They must be revealed to us from heaven. So when Jesus makes the statement saying, afterward, you will understand, I think we need to take this in light of, of Jesus' hour, this great work that he was going to be accomplishing, all that he would do on the cross, and, and as well as uh, the larger farewell discourse that is coming. Uh, remember Jesus later in chapters uh, 14 and 16, he's going to promise the Holy Spirit, saying that the Holy Spirit is going to bring to their minds remembrance of all the things that he uh, has done and said that the Holy Spirit was going to be their guide into all truth. So I think what we need to understand is what Jesus is doing, uh, or to understand what it is that he is doing when he's washing his disciples' feet, we need to think about everything else that Jesus is going to be doing soon. So remember, the, the Holy Spirit... It's not going to indwell the believers until Pentecost. So even before that, you know, you look at Jesus as going to the cross. You look at it, what it is that he does there. You look at his self-giving sacrifice. Remember, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down with my own accord. So you look at the self-giving sacrifice that he makes on the cross. What it is he accomplishes there. And then that brought to your understanding by the Holy Spirit, is I think when you'll be able to see what it is that Jesus is teaching him. You see, the doctrine that Jesus teaches is so lofty, it is so spiritual, that it is utterly incomprehensible to our flesh. For the Lord of all creation, 
to make himself a servant and to wash our feet is so just opposite of the way we think. So contrary to the way we think and thus we require divine grace and enlightenment to understand. So in verse 8 we read, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Or, excuse me. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him saying this, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Here again we see another case of what looks like spiritual humility on the outside is truthfully demonstrating a a level of spiritual arrogance on the inside. You see, Jesus, as he's washing Peter's feet, saying, Peter, soon you're going to understand what it is I'm doing here. Jesus, he knows what he's doing. He, he's, he's thought about that. He has an, an intention for it all. And Peter objects to this. He says, you, you shall never wash my feet. What is that? It's, it's disobedience. It's, it's a grave thing. And so when we look at Peter in a place like this, I think we also see a window into some of our own foolishness at times. It's like the kid who refuses medicine from his mother because he doesn't like the taste. Here Peter objects to what Christ offers because he does not, it's not in the form that he expects. And so, you know, just as one divine said uh, concerning this passage, there is a There is a kind of ignorance that is more learned than any other kind of knowledge. What is that? It is when we permit God to be wise above us. You see, we must, if we are to be obedient followers of Jesus Christ, we need to allow Jesus to prove us wrong when we need it. Uh, We need to be willing to allow God to Uh, prove our own expectations and our own assumptions incorrect. But how hard of a lesson is that to learn? So Peter objects, he says, You shall never wash my feet. And what is the thing that he is objecting towards? He is objecting Christ serving him and allowing Jesus to perform a gracious act for him. This is what Peter is foolishly objecting to, whether he realizes it or not. And so what we need to realize is that as Peter objects to the gracious servitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the God of all creation, through whom all things are made, humbles himself, gets down on his knees, washes his feet, that when Peter objects to that, he is in essence objecting to the very gospel message Itself. Now you see, the many cults and the many false religions which will name the name of Jesus Christ and yet deny the truth of him, they all share this one thing in common. They make it so that your salvation, so that your standing before God is merited by your service to Christ, that it is what you do for him That saves you. And this, what does it do? Well, it gives people the opportunity to showcase just just how humble they are, just how virtuous they are, when in reality all that they are doing is giving themselves an excuse to boast. There, in history, arose what we refer to as the monastic movement. Uh, You've heard of monasteries, you've heard of monks, you've heard of nuns. And I suppose that some of this was righteous in its origin. I mean, what you had was uh, people beginning with with Jerome and St. Paula realizing the sinfulness of sin. Uh, Paula, who was sort of the the first nun, she uh, became so distraught with her own recognition of how she had used her body in, in, in the past that she sort of went overboard trying to distort herself and to make herself look as least appealing to the eyes as, as possible. But, and, and, and let's actually just say this, I, I suppose it would be better to have that attitude than sort of the attitude of our culture, which says that there's nothing wrong with sin at all, but 
What did that devolve into? Well, that devolved into a sort of system where, I mean, look at that guy. I mean, he's fasted for however many days. He, he lives up on a pillar far away from everyone else. He, he whips himself. He does this thing. He does that thing. And, and what does it ultimately do? It becomes a look at me, look at me, mom. Look at my service. Look what I do. Look what I would put myself through. And, and so we sort of, in the history of the church, there developed this, this system, this, this false ideology, where we sort of backed away from Jesus serving us and Jesus accomplishing righteousness for us to now, it's something that you do. And we need to be so, so very careful that we don't slip into this sort of attitude or, or this sort of uh, mindset. And so that is what I think Peter unknowingly does here. Uh, you know, he says, no, Lord, I, I will never allow you to serve me. And so let's look at the response that Jesus gives. Because I think that what Jesus says in this passage is likely one of the most critical sayings in the entire New Testament as to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And it is once again in this statement of Jesus Christ that we see so clearly and plainly the foolishness that is the wisdom of man. Jesus answered him and he said this, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You see, the very essence of the entire Christian faith is found in those words that I just read to you. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. May all the false teaching and the false ideologies that would attack the graciousness of grace have their mouths shut by these words of the Savior. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What a precious sight to behold. I mean, how can you even comprehend something like that? How, how can you even make sense of this in your mind? It's like I, I can't even get my head around the words of Jesus here. I, I know what they mean. I know the, the theology behind it. I know what he's saying. So that's not the issue. It's just that I, I can't even fathom Something as wonderful as what I read here. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You see, right there is the Christian faith. Right there is the gospel message. You have the Lord's suffering servant that was promised through Isaiah. You have the humble ram who would trade places with Isaac on the altar. This is what is happening. You have the king of the universe, the Lord of all creation, through whom all things were made, who was in the beginning with God and who was God, who was there when the very first foundation stone was laid for the construction of the earth, who was there when Adam drew his first breath, who was there when God gave Noah his covenant sign, who was there when the promise was made to Abraham, who was there when the law was established to Moses, who was there? When King David first ascended to the throne, you have this man, you have the eternal Son of God, and you have the Lord of, of glory. He has taken upon human flesh, and not just a part of human flesh, but having a complete and true human nature. And what is he doing? He is making himself a servant. I repeat that, a servant. For who? For royalty, for the wealthy, or for a bunch of worthless sinners. And he looks at this loudmouthed Peter and he says to him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, why is that? Well, the reality is, Peter, in his natural state, Left in his natural state, he's not clean. He, he is in need of, of washing. He was born, he was conceived in sin. 
all that was in his flesh was corrupted. He hated God. He didn't want God. He despised God, just like every other sinner on planet Earth was born a a hater of God who did not do any good, who did not seek God, who was completely disgusting and revolting and repugnant in the sight of God, who is nothing but sheer filth, who left to his own devices, would die in rebellion and receive the wages for his sin. That's who Peter was in his natural state. And so Jesus says to him, Peter, you don't understand this. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. You see, what Peter did not understand was that the relationship that he had with Jesus was entirely dependent upon the grace of Jesus Christ cleansing him from his unrighteousness. Think about the great confession that that Peter makes in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus, he's asking his disciples who the people say that the Son of Man is, and then without answering the question himself, Jesus says, well, but who do you say that I am? What does Peter say? Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now this is where we object. This is where we don't understand. Because we in our flesh, we just have this idea that we think that we're good people. We we find it offensive that God would say that our flesh profits nothing, that it's the Spirit who gives life. But that's just the reality. And that's, you know, that's, 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 I think, easy for us to understand if we know our Bibles. This idea of, Depravity and, and original sin and these, these different things are quite obvious. And, and I think that I could make a compelling case for that truth without even using the Bible by just pointing it to, to the world that we live in and looking at history. And so here is just, just what absolutely blows me away. And I hope that it would have the same gracious effect for all of you and, and on your own soul. And it is this, that Jesus Christ decides that he chooses, that he takes it upon himself to wash us. Do you realize how sweet that is? Do you realize how precious that is? That Jesus, I mean, would save a wretch like me. That that he would wash us. And what he says is that if I do not wash you, You have no share with me. Here is what is offered. You have the gracious cleansing of God's Son, washing away all of our sins with His own blood, and you have the complete renewal of our nature. Jesus says a man must be born again. There's there's a new birth. We are new creations in, in Christ Jesus. And so that is what is being communicated when Jesus talks about washing here in this place. And so that, that's what we need to recognize. That is what we need to rejoice in. That is what we need to put our hope in. Not in ourselves. Not in our own goodness, our own worthiness, our own righteousness. What does the prophet Isaiah say? He says, your good works are but a filthy rags to a holy God. And, and you know what else Isaiah says? He says that by his wounds we are healed. Paul says that He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange. That is the cross. That is Jesus takes my place so that God looks at me as though I had lived the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ. Do you know something, brethren? When we stand before God on Judgment Day, do you realize that He's going to look at us all the same way as having been clothed with the righteousness of His beloved Son? Do you realize that? Do you realize that not one Christian is like more saved than another or anything like that? Do you realize He will look at us all that exact same way? 
And if that is true, should we not then treat each other, uh, love one another with, with humility and respect and, and self-service? And so that is what Jesus accomplishes for us. And he takes it upon himself. He gives his own, he lays his life down on the altar. And so it is through our faith in the atoning, sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross that you and I are forgiven, that we are cleansed from our sins, that we have peace with God. Paul says, having been justified by our faith, we have peace with God. And if that is not precious to you, then, then, you're, then you're not a Christian. Then you, you, don't, you, you don't understand what this is about. You need to believe these things. You need to trust on Christ alone as the sole redeemer of your soul. Unless you do that, you will die in your sins. Why do I say that? Well, because it's, it's not original to me. It's uh, Jesus himself said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And here he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You see, that is it right there. That is where true, genuine, biblical Christianity, meaning the kind of religion that gets people into heaven, differs from all other religions, from all other forms of expression, even if they name the name of Christ. You see, if your religious system is not 100% solely and exclusively based upon the cleansing work of Jesus Christ, purifying your heart and your soul, bearing your sins in His body for you, giving you His righteousness, a complete renewal of your will and nature, Unless that is what it's all founded upon, your religious system is false and will not save anybody, but will only damn them. I'm aware that somewhere around here there's a softball team that has a jersey that says John 3.16, or John, John 14.6. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that communicates faith and reliance upon Him, not upon our works. This is how Paul can say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you realize how dense of a statement that is? You see, Paul attributes not only our uh, salvation and our faith as, as being the gift of God, but Paul even attributes the good works that we do as, as the life that we live. He even gives God the credit for that as well, saying that we are God's Workmanship. Do, 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 you, do you get that? Do you, do you realize just how the Christian life is entirely about God? And we are simply a, a part of his greater plan? We read that wonderful text in, in, in Philippians when Paul writes and he says, uh, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For why? For his good pleasure. You see, it's like it starts with God, it continues with God, and it ends with God. You know, it's almost like God values nothing more than God. You say, well, that's, that's strange, that's egotistic. egotistic. Well, think about it. If God is going to tell us to have no idols, to place nothing above Him, you think that God is going to commit the sin that he forbids us from doing? You think that God is going to delight or glorify in anything more than the most glorious thing which is him? Not at all. And yet here is where the love of God is so magnificent that he works in us to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. It's like he it's almost like God saved you because he wanted to. <laughs> 
And is that not, not, not a, a wonderful thing? And is it not wonderful that even our, our works, the good deeds that we do after we are saved, that it's, it's like those don't even come just for me. It's like those come from God. You, you know, we don't fight this battle by ourselves. Jesus, he sent us his helper, the Holy Spirit. And so, that being said, do you understand that there is no room for pride, for arrogance, for self-righteousness, that there is no room for boasting? You see, you must, in your very heart of hearts, relinquish, get rid of all pride. Get rid of all boasting. Get rid of all self-righteousness. Just, just be completely empty with yourself. That way you might be filled up again with Christ Jesus. You see, our God is a jealous God and he will not share his glory with another. You will get into heaven because of what he has done. You can either have all of Christ or you can have none of him. You can be for him or you can be against him. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So you see, it then points us to a necessity that we all have. That we need to be washed. That we need to be washed. That we, must, we need to be the gracious recipients of God's divine and His powerful and His wonderful, loving, sovereign, unmerited grace. That, that it is the gift of God. Because you, before we were converted... We were, you know, we were, Paul says that we were once dead in our trespasses and sin. That what did we follow? We followed the prince of the power of the air. We followed after the lusts of the flesh, the passions of the flesh. We, we followed after our sin. We were enslaved to our sin. That, that, is, that is what we are all about. And who brought us out of that? It wasn't ourselves. It was him. He brought us out of that. He washed us. He graciously saved us. And that not only includes the forgiveness of sins, but the newness of life that we now walk in. So someone may ask, well, Logan, if it's all about him, if it's all about him, if, if he washes us and I, and I do nothing about it, well, I, I mean, I, I want to be washed. I, I desire to be washed. That right there is a wonderful sign. Why? Where does the will come from to desire God. I already told you, it is God who works in you to will for his good pleasure. So even your desire to be joined to Christ, your desire to be a share with him, uh, have a share with him, even that came from you. And if he who began a good work in you, he, he's, not, he's not going to stop that work. He's going to bring it about to completion. So he's already begun that work in you, and he is going to finish. So how do you enter into the cleansing? How do you enter into grace? You know, Jesus at one point in his life, he was asked this question. It was asked of him, who then can be saved? And you remember what Jesus said. He said, with man, it's impossible. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So therefore rejoice, for there has been a sacrifice for sinners. God has accomplished salvation. And the promise of Scripture is so very, very consistent that to all those who believe in Jesus Christ, every single believer, like the song we sang this morning, will enter into that salvation. Everyone who comes to Jesus will find him to be a complete perfect and total Savior, having bore their sins on the cross. Therefore, don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your own righteousness. You know, I've heard many people in my life say to me that they believe that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. And I say, why do you think that? Well, because I'm a good person. You know, I take care of my family. I show up to work, do my taxes, do these different things. It's like, you don't understand if, 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 if genuinely, in your heart of hearts, that is what you believe, if there's anyone in this room here this morning who thinks that you are going to go to heaven because you are a good person, 
you know, it's like, I suppose, maybe if you were a good person, then, then God would let you into heaven for that reason. But here's the problem. You're not. None of us are. You need to be washed. Because unless He washes you, you don't have a share with Him. And so, that is where we, we need to, to focus, and we, where we need to come down upon this. There is a necessary thing that all people must do, and that is to trust in Jesus Christ by faith. For He is the one mediator between God and man. The Scripture says that God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Repentance and faith. And so then, here's this great blessing. We understand that we need to be washed by Christ, because then he says that, you know, unless we're washed, we don't have to share with him. And we've talked about that a little, but we should give it more attention. So what, what does it mean to have a share with Christ? You know, we've already observed on the one hand that there is the forgiveness of sins, there's the renewal of our nature, but we also have this wonderful, I think just so precious bit of truth to latch on to, and that is the unity that there is between the believer and Christ Jesus. There's the unity of the bride with her husband. That we, we, we have a share with him. That by our faith, this is what our baptism signifies, is that by our faith we've joined with Christ in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. Jesus later in John chapter 14, he's going to be talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit's going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to indwell all believers. And Jesus says this. He says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You see, there's a lovely tie and bond between the good shepherd and the sheep. The good shepherd knows his sheep and they know him. They hear his voice and they follow his voice and they will not follow another. Dear Christian, rejoice. Rejoice in the relationship that you have with Christ. Rejoice that you have a share with him and that you will share in that eternal, undefiled inheritance which he has promised to all of his sheep whom he calls to himself. Give praise, give serious praise and adoration to Christ Jesus. I mean, should it not follow that Christians love Christ? Shouldn't we love Him? And, we, and, and what does the Bible say about our love? Why do we love? Well, we love because He first loved us. Oh, how all of us must rejoice to have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ that we might have to share with him. Well, in verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now here, Peter, he gets sort of back on the right track, but his response is still muddled with confusion and, and misunderstanding. Here he rightly recognizes Jesus' words, the, the dreadfulness of the idea that he would not have a share with Christ were not for a, a Christ cleansing him of his filthiness and of his pollution. And so he zealously cries out, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and, and my head. Now here, although he rightly recognizes his need to allow Christ to serve him and to cleanse him, he is still showing some confusion and some arrogance on, on his own part. For one, he, he's making demands of Christ as if, he, as if Christ didn't know what he was doing. But also, he, he's showing a deep misunderstanding of what it is that Jesus is saying. Jesus, as we'll, we'll see more clearly in verses 10 and 11, he's not, he's not talking about a physical washing. Uh, Jesus is not saying that unless I pour some water in, into a tub and give you a bath that, that you won't have a share with me. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a spiritual cleansing, a spiritual sanctifying that only comes 
by the power of God, by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has already said in in John chapter 3, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Chapter 6, he says, it is the spirit who gives life, and the flesh, no help at all. No help at all. Peter, he sort of misunderstands what it is that, that Jesus is talking about, that he's talking about a spiritual cleansing. That's why he sort of demands that Jesus continue washing not just his feet, but, but the rest of his body as well. And so in verse 10 we read, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And so here is where it is revealed that Christ spoke of a spiritual cleansing and not a physical one, saying, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus is telling Peter that, you know, before Jesus had even gotten the water out to wash his feet, that truly, in in the deeper sense, in the spiritual sense, he already was clean. Because it was the cleansing power of the Spirit of God that ultimately rid Peter of his sinful nature. Now, does that mean Peter never sinned again? No, he denied the Lord three times. Not if his betrayal. Just like you and I, though our sin nature has been washed away, does that mean we don't struggle with the flesh? Well, no, of course not. But that in no way takes away or disrupts the cleansing work that Jesus has already accomplished. And so... What Jesus is saying is that at this moment, Peter, you've already received the cleansing power of the Spirit of God. And and you've already been purified that you may walk in newness of life. And so let us rejoice in that. That there is nothing that adds to our salvation. That we don't need to be baptized to, to merit God's grace or to earn God's grace, and then, you know, make sure we do some other things and keep up on confession and and seven other sacraments to sort of keep it up and and make sure that we don't lose it. That's that's not the case at all. Our justification, which means our standing before God, how God looks at us, is totally and completely secured for us by the work of Jesus Christ. Now, in, in these words here, Jesus is also using the the foot washing to sort of teach an additional lesson that is, that is connected. And that hinges upon the words, except for his feet. Now, I would not be doing my job as a, a preacher and a teacher of God's word if I did not at least mention the fact that there is a textual variant here, that there are some manuscripts which omit or leave out the phrase, except for his feet. Uh, that being said, the overwhelming amount of textual evidence uh, is in favor of the longer reading, which leads to the conclusion that this is the original reading of John. This, uh, it's likely due to the fact that some copyists didn't understand it. They thought it made things unclear, and so they, they took it out to sort of clear things up. By the way, just in passing, that was the tendency of a scribe, was to try to make things more clear, not less clear, but in light of, aside from that lecture, uh, this phrase, except for his feet, is likely the original, so if that is the case, what is Jesus saying there? What, what is it, what's it mean? Well, the common interpretation, and my, my interpretation as well, is that what this refers to is the continual, ongoing work of sanctification in the life of the already totally, completely justified believer. Meaning this, a person who is saved, they're already clean. Forgiveness of sins, uh, your sins are as, as, as far as, from me as the east is to the west. You have peace with God, saved, secure in the arms of Jesus Christ. And so the person who is who's already saved, they're clean, they've been washed, uh, which is, they're, they're not, they don't need a whole nother cleansing. They're not going to lose that, that first, that initial 
cleansing. So that's why Jesus says to Peter, the one who's already bathed does not need to wash because they're already clean. But you see, a person in, in this state of grace, they're not going to lose their salvation, to put it in simpler terms. But we also need to understand that the Christian life is a continual struggle between the Spirit and between the flesh. So what I think Jesus is doing here is he's using the foot washing to demonstrate the Christian person's continual reliance upon the grace of God to sustain them. The Christian's continual need to repent and to ask for forgiveness of sins. Well, well, think about it this way. If we are going to affirm the fact that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it about to completion, well, well then he is. And he's, uh, you, you know, someone made the comment this morning about the Great Commission, that they are just some of the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. When Jesus says, Look, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so it's not like you get saved, you, you repent, you believe, and then that's it, you're on your own. No, Jesus is still with you. Holy Spirit is still with you. God is still with you. His grace is still with you, continuing you, carrying you along as you sin, as you stumble, as you fall, to pick you back up again. You know, sometimes, I, I, maybe some people in this congregation have experienced it, but you know, it's like sometimes we sin, and, and if it's a grievous sin, we might think, well, I just need to just, just sort of just stay away from things of God for a little bit. I just, just need to clear my head, maybe just, just sort of chill out, and then you know, maybe I can read my Bible again. Maybe I can pray again. And you know what that is? That's, that's just evil. That's just the devil. When you sin, when you commit a grievous sin and, and you're broken and you're in tears and you're mourning and you're weeping, you need to run to God as fast as you can. Don't, don't distance yourself and, and, and feel like, well, I'm not worthy. I, I, just, I just can't go into His presence. He didn't save you because you were worthy. He saved you because He loved you. And so if you're his child, even when you stumble and fall, don't, don't feel like you, you, you need to distance yourself. Come to him. Allow him to, to pick you up. Allow him to, to wipe away those tears. He, he is always going to be a part of your life, even when you stumble and fall. And so that's what I sort of think is in there. You're already washed. You're already clean. Jesus says to Peter, the one who is... Uh, Bathe does not need to wash again. He's already clean. But except for his feet, he says. And so there's going to be that continual work of grace in our lives. Calvin makes this insightful comment saying, The term feet, therefore, is metaphorically applied to all the passions and cares by which we are brought into contact with the world. For if the Holy Spirit occupied every part of us, we would no longer have anything to do with the pollutions of the world, but now, by that part in which we are carnal, we creep on the ground, or at least fix our feet in the clay, and therefore are to some extent unclean. What he's referring to is, you're still making contact with this world. You're still, I mean, Jesus did not pray that his Father would take you out of the world, but that he would keep you from the evil one. So you're still in this world. So he goes on to say, thus Christ always finds in us something to cleanse. What is here spoken of is not the forgiveness of sins, but the renewal by which Christ, by gradual and uninterrupted succession, delivers his followers entirely from the sinful desires of the flesh. You know, it's almost like the Christian life can be compared to like a roller coaster. There's ups, there's downs, there's peaks, there's valleys. But And so there are times when in the moment, when you're sort of zoomed into things, it feels like you're just, just going down like this. But if you take a step back, you look at where you started from, you look at where you're going, and you realize that the overall trajectory is going up. That it's going up. You know, what does Jesus compare the kingdom of God to? A mustard seed. Starts real small, expands. It's exactly like that in the work of grace in our lives. 
And so, here in these precious words, Christ also gives us a stark word, at least to the people to whom he is speaking, saying, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Now here he speaks of Judas. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. Uh, Judas has not been a recipient of the cleansing power of, of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus spoke about to Peter. That is why Judas will betray Christ. There are some people who will try to use Judas as an example of someone who lost her salvation. And so if Judas can lose her salvation, so can you. But here's the thing. Judas weren't clean. It's not that Judas had salvation and lost it. Judas had never been saved in the first place. And so here in Christ's words, we see that Judas, he had not been cleansed at all because if he had been clean, according to Jesus' own teaching, he would not ever again need that complete washing, as in the forgiveness of sins. He would have only then needed the continual cleansing of the feet, the continual work of grace in the life. And just make these comments in passing. If someone can be as close to Jesus as Judas was, can walk with Jesus all those years, and yet remain unclean, is it not then possible for us to spend years in the church, to spend years calling ourselves Christians, not having ever been cleansed? May that be a searching word for us all. And so just in closing, as we contemplate the the powerful, the saving work of our Savior. I, I want to leave you with this last thought. There is no sinner who coming to Christ will not find forgiveness. There is no sinner, no sin that Jesus can't forgive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 we read this. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let that give you hope. Let that be a message to you. If you feel that way, that because of your past sin or because of your past life or you've done this thing, you've done that thing, listen, he, he, Paul sort of just lays the book out there. He, he lists, he talks about all sorts of sexual immorality, thievery, swindlers, all, all these different things. And he says, listen, congregation, suffer some of you. Meaning, that is past tense now. Now they have been cleansed. Now Jesus has washed them. They have been sanctified by Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Let that be an encouragement to the friends and family that you may have, who may be living lives of sin. Listen, don't think for a moment that it's over for them, that Jesus can't save them. How is he going to save them, though? It is going to be through the truth of his word. Well, how are they going to hear his word when you bring it to them? Let us then, as we close our time together, give much thanks and much praise to our great God and Savior who has cleansed us thoroughly of our sins and will continue to sustain us and keep us all the days of our lives. Don't you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your truth. Father, I just pray that these words would not fall on deaf ears, or, but that they would seep deeply into our hearts and, and deeply into our souls. 
Father, may we be transformed by your truth. May we be changed by your truth. May we have hope in the cleansing power that you offer to all who would come to you by faith. It is in the name of your beloved Son which we pray, Christ Jesus. Amen.